Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself. Broaden your mind. Open your heart and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Good morning and welcome. I am so excited to be with you today. This is going to be a little bit of a different kind of show. I typically am always talking about books that are nonfiction, and today we are diving into a novel uh, that is based on the life of Siddhartha. Uh, Actually, it's based on uh, his wife, which is going to be quite the take. It is called Bride of Buddha, and I want to share a little passage with you. I won't leave without your blessing. Siddhartha whispered so softly, I wasn't sure he wanted me to hear. He stood in the carved rosewood doorway of our bedchamber, and in the deepening silence of my refusal, I pulled Rahula closer, praying that our two-day-old son would feel only the beating of my heart and not the bitterness that filled it. You don't need my blessing. Just go. Find your dharma. My young husband, who would one day be called the Buddha, didn't move. He stood in the darkness across the room from our wedding bed, and I lay on my side with my back to him, staring out the window at a moon waning to a diamond-white crescent. A single star, sharp as betrayal, was poised beside it. It was just before dawn. Rahula stirred against my collarbone, a small shifting warmth under the cool silk coverlet. My husband had named him Rahula, the common word for bond, but it also meant fetter. Yasi. Siddhartha said, if you ask me, I will stay. If you ask me to stay, I will. This is the story of Yasodhara, the abandoned wife of the Buddha. Facing society's challenges, she transforms her rage into devotion to the path of liberation. Concealing her gender, she joins the monastic community and becomes the Buddha's closest confidant, known in the scriptures as Ananda. She slash he is the one who persuades the Buddha to allow women to join the order and attains awakening just in time to guide the council in preserving the Buddha's teachings. This page-turner about a woman's struggle in an unapologetic patriarchy, Bride of the Buddha, offers you a penetrating perspective on the milieu of the Buddha with a fanciful twist. It's written by Dr. Barbara McHugh, and she is a Buddhist practitioner with degrees in religious literature from UC Berkeley. Her research for this book includes exhaustive study of Pali texts in translation and on-site explorations in India. Although this book probably took her two to three years to write, I'm sure it's been a lifetime in the making. You can find out more about her at barbaramchugh.com. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome you, Barbara, to 1111 Talk Radio. Hi, I'm happy to be here. It's wonderful. Uh, the whole book is wonderful, and it 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 grips the reader from the moment uh, one starts reading it. And the whole idea of writing a book from this perspective, because oftentimes we don't hear about Yasodhar. We 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 only hear about Buddha's story. We've not heard this story, and uh, and I I take it you really got yourself inside of. Uh, not only the, the, the story, the myth, the legend uh, that took place, but you really took us down a path of what is uh, almost as common today in terms of many of the themes that are portrayed within the book, whether it relates to gender, whether it relates to women's issues, or uh, many other themes that are expressed. 
talk a little bit about uh, how life is imitating art and art is to imitating life, so to speak, through this book. Well, yes, you're right. These same themes are coming up uh, now, This the rights of women, the, the position of women. It was, a, it was a big struggle, and I was surprised when I was doing the research how much that did figure in and how much in the poly canon there's a lot of misogyny that I had to deal with. Uh, I think one of the most profound uh, dichotomies and themes in the novel and in my research was this whole idea that in every religion there seems to be this polarity between you know, this need to, des- to transcend the world and you know its mortality and the suffering in the world and at the same time to love the world and love individuals in the world. And how do we, how do we live with these, pol- these two poles? And then in some ways is the whole struggle that uh, Yasodhara had you know, wanting to be, wanting to love her son, wanting to love people, wanting to love some of the monks, you know, as, as her own children, and yet needing to make that love impersonal somehow. And I, there's no, I, for me, there's no easy answer for that. I, I just, it's sort of just two opposites that I have to live for, uh, live with. And there's a quote that sometimes uh, Buddhists read, it's not a. It's not an actual Buddhist quote. It's actually by a Vedanta writer. But it, the the quote is: Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. My life is a river that flows between the two. And I think that's about as close as I can get to um, come to terms with the theme in some kind of a verbal formulation. But I think it has to be lived and felt. And I wanted to write the novel as opposed to just writing some scholarly discourse to have that emotional truth come through. Is it, and and it's, yeah. it's really well done because so much of the teachings come through the novel along the way. And I think that each and every human being, whether conscious or unconsciously, there is that struggle between significance and insignificance or being in the world but not being of the world. So it is a theme that that we all meet at some place and time within our own lives. And it was really clear that this was something that hit uh, Yasodora early on from childhood. It wasn't even that this was a desire once she got to be in her teens or in marriage, but from that moment in childhood where she had to, to uh, when she first started meeting the ascetics and then had to face the death of her sister, that desire to understand really unfolded. Yeah, in a way, she has the same kind of existential crisis that the Buddha has at age 29. You know, the whole myth of the Buddha, uh, which is clearly a myth. I mean, it's, it's kind of an impossibility way that's described in the suttas and other places that Buddha was a prince. He, he, be, he was born a prince in a palace and his father was a king, which already is mythical. He was actually more of the son of a clan leader, the way I made him in the book. And, but his, his father was told by a holy man, either your son will become a great holy man or he will become a great monarch. Well, the father was all for the monarch and not for the holy man part. So he, he decided he'd set up his entire establishment to make it a worldly paradise for his son with no signs of death or sickness or old age anywhere so that his son will be happy in his home and become a king. Unfortunately, the gods had other 
plans for the Buddha or the Buddha to be, and they arranged for his charioteer to take him out on a ride when he was 29, where he witnessed a, a sick man, an old man, a dying man, and then a holy man. And so the Buddha had his crisis you know, of, oh my God, death is terrible and I'm scared and this, my whole world, my whole life, which was perfect until now, has turned to ash. And now I have to do something about it. But here's this holy man who offers me the way out. And, and so he decides to leave his wife and child and his newborn son and his, his quote unquote kingdom, which is actually his parents' establishment. And he doesn't leave her lying in the road or anything. You know, he, she's got good care. And he goes off on his quest. But it was a quest that, that Yasodhara had wanted ever since she was a child. Because she had had the same kind of quest when she went to the charnel ground to find her sister's body and find her sister's spirit. And she couldn't find spirits. And, and it was really... Sense. It was really traumatic for her to realize that the body was just this thing, that all of these bodies were these right. things and there was nothing there. And, and that, yeah. that quest to find soul or to understand the soul really almost haunted her. I guess that, in a sense, was its own craving that she had uh, that wouldn't yeah. leave her alone. Yes, that's very well put. It was the craving which causes suffering. <laughs> and so the Buddha had it. When she finally got to the to the Buddhist community, and even before her her shaman in the hills had to guide her away from that explicit search uh, for this this soul that, in some sense, doesn't exist the way she thinks it exists. Um, the Buddha never said there's no self. But he's, what, he, what he did say, or what Buddhism says, is that you can't find the self in phenomena. The self is not the body, the self is not the mind, the self is not emotions. The self isn't even consciousness. You know, you, when you really start to explore it, the self is a mystery, and, it, and he, doesn't, he only will take that mystery so far. And the Buddha would say, I don't teach, I don't teach metaphysics or big explanations. I teach one thing suffering and how to get out of suffering, how to end suffering. And so uh, that's what she, I sort of made her a modern person in that she doesn't see spirits the way a lot of modern people don't. And uh, I, I did that just to give the book a broader uh, base because you, you can believe in spirits and read this book and you can be like Yasodhara and not see spirits and still be able to resonate with the book, I hope. And uh, it also follows the, the times, because the Buddha was born in what they call an axial period, where everything was up for grabs, and it seemed to start around 800 BCE. And there was a lot more uh, traveling and trading and mingling between cultures, which is one explanation for it. But what happened was that suddenly everyone's old religions weren't making as much sense because they were being bombarded with all these different ideas. And also, there's also a theory that there was more disease because there was more urbanization, so people were more discontent. And so this was the milieu that the Buddha was born in. And so it could make sense that even a child might not see the spirits that her mother always saw and his, her grandmother and all her ancestors. Well, I think it's wonderful that you wrote it that way because she does come across as someone that could have 
live today and having the same kind of inner conflicts that uh, people would have today. The death of her sister really had her question everything about the God worshiping and the devas and, you know, what was the soul and, and it really got to the point where uh, having that quest or finding out was the only thing that was going to support the grief. But when she asked ascetics about these things, she was in a way dismissed and told that she shouldn't be discussing those types of things, that, that little girls or, or women were not to know these kinds of things. And so there was a real distinction between what men were allowed to do and what women were allowed to do and anything related to souls or consciousness or that type of asceticism was definitely not allowed for women. Yeah, I mean, there were some, there is some record of holy women traveling and uh, even families going out on the road together to become wanderers at that time. As I said, everything was kind of up for grabs, but it was rare. And I also had the sense that even as there was this sort of openness now in this new urban life, things were also solidifying. The caste system was solidifying. So women's roles were solidifying so that there was a sense of less freedom as well as more freedom. And, uh, and a lot is not known about these times, but just in terms of the, the patterns of what happened and what continued to happen and how difficult it was for women to join the Sangha all points to the real restriction in the roles of women. Even her mother kind of dissuaded her from following that initially. She she said that the gift for women is their beauty and that requires silence and that gets lost in the chatter and that that was something she needed to put aside um, so right. that she could enjoy the fact that she was a woman. But But when she really communicated to her mother what she wanted, her mother did bend slightly. Why do you think that was, that her mother did... Uh, did want that freedom for her. Is it because inside of herself, her, her mother also wanted to have some understanding and it was in a way to live through her daughter? Yeah, and she also, when she lost her her second daughter after losing her first daughter, she had lost some of her faith. I mean, she, you know, she was dismayed. I mean, she, be, you know, she, the gods didn't help me. I, I did all the rituals right. And at that time, it was believed that that was what made the universe work. You know, you, you had to uh, do these, perform these rituals exactly right, and then you would be rewarded. And she had done it. She'd always been just very, very uh, responsible about her household gods and how to treat them. And all of a sudden, these things were happening to her. And she, she could no longer just go along with the old ways. Plus, she always loved her daughter. She was a loving mother. And she even, into, even when Yasi first asked her, she said, well, you know, I can, I'll think about this. And then when she found, you know, you know but then when she really lost her daughter, uh, things became more crucial for her. Yes, yes. And, and much prior to that, when it was time for... Um, for those questions to initially come up with, with Yasi and she placed the mirror in front of her so she could see herself. It was, it was like Yasi really only saw herself as feminine for the very first time right there. It's, it's as if she didn't even right. realize her own uh, feminine power and, and, and her ability to be who she was in that manner. 
I love the line that you wrote, what better way to fulfill self-love than to look into the eyes of a living mirror as my husband. I know, that's the seductiveness, a lot of erotic love. It is, it is not how uh, you, I see me, it's how you see me that, you know, makes me love you. Oh, and it's all, it's, there's a very, you know, that very egoistic aspect of erotic love. And also at the time, in her time, mirrors were very rare, you know, and they weren't the glass mirrors. They were silver or they were onyx. And so you, she wouldn't have seen herself very often in any case. Yasi, Siddhartha said, if you ask me to stay, I will. I looked at him still standing in the doorway, but he was only a silhouette his clear eyes and the tender curve of his lips already fading in my memory. Perhaps if I'd seen his face and it had revealed a change, I would have begged him to stay. But in recent months, his look of sadness and revulsion at the sight of my mortal flesh and all the suffering it implied had lodged in my soul. And now I could think of nothing but that look. I won't change your plans, I said. You're right to cast off your illusions. I only wish you'd done it before we married." I gazed at the rising crescent moon, which was soon to be effaced by morning sunlight. Already there was a green smear in the eastern sky. This is from Barbara McHugh's book, Bride of the Buddha. She is a Buddhist practitioner with degrees in religious literature from UC Berkeley, and her research for this book included exhaustive study of Pali texts in translation and on-site explorations in India. You can find out more about her work and this book at barbaramchugh.com, the Website is in the description box in the bio, um, and it is Barbara McHugh, M-C-H-U-G-H dot com. Uh, it is really a delightful book. I urge you to get your copy of Bride of the Buddha and dive right into it and immerse yourself within this story. Uh, we will be right back after these messages with more Bride of the Buddha and Barbara McHugh. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, 
guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course. Dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at imsimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Before we get back to Dr. Barbara McHugh and Bride of the Buddha, the fascinating story of Yasodhara and the Buddha, I want to mention to you something special that is being given to 1111 Talk Radio listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, allows you to start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available which may not be available in your local areas. And it is a service that can be accessed from clients worldwide. You just log into your account anytime. You send a message to your counselor, and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you don't ever have to leave the comfort of your home. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Again, that's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com. You can go to BetterHelp.com forward slash 11, spell out the word 11, and that will ensure you to get that discount. They want you to start living a happier life today. You can even visit their website. You will read testimonials that they post daily. And you can visit BetterHelp.com forward slash 11, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Once again, that special offer for 1111 Talk Radio listeners is to get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash 11. So definitely check that out. I also want to invite you to attend the after show. Uh, I am now doing an after the 1111 Talk Radio show. Uh, on stereo and it is a fun and wonderful app where you get to engage with me and have conversation with me and my guests we talk about the shows that have taken place on 1111 talk radio plus i dive into introducing you to many other people that are doing great work in the world so i hope you'll join me it's a great way for you to comment ask questions or engage in the conversation so that's every tuesday i go on at uh, 12 30 and at 4 p.m 
Eastern Time. Uh, again, you can go to the Stereo app, set up your avatar, and look for the Simran 1111 page and click subscribe. Uh, you can also go to the 1111 Talk radio page that you're on right now. And scroll to the middle of the page and you'll see a banner that will click you right to that place to set up your own avatar and start joining the after party. So I hope you'll join me later on today after this wonderful show with Barbara McHugh. She has created a story of Yasodhara, the abandoned wife of Buddha, and the many challenges that she faced as she transformed her rage into the devotional path of liberation. Uh, This book goes into many issues such as gender, women's issues, and the conflict that we have internally about living in the world or being above this material plane. My husband spoke one last time. I promise if I find the truth, I'll bring it home to you. And Rahula, I doubted his words. A minute went by, then another. Finally, the breeze shifted and the crickets resumed their refrain. Siddhartha had left as I knew he would. He was taking the journey I'd once intended for myself. This is from the book, Bride of the Buddha, and you can find out more at barbaramchugh.com. That's barbaramchugh, M-C-H-U-G-H.com. We were talking a bit about um, when Yasi realized that she did want to marry, and she ended up marrying uh, the sister who had just passed, uh, ended up marrying um, her husband, which eventually became the Buddha. And their first years together were really quite happy. They were very engaged and involved with one another. And that even seemed a little more contemporary because she got out and did a lot of the worldly things or the work that Siddhartha was doing in the world as well. Uh, Do you think that that was something that was allotted to women back at that time, or was that one of the more modern-day elements that you put in? That was probably a stretch. I mean, you know, but (laughs) things happen, and uh, I wanted to show them, you know, really having a connection and really loving each other. It was for me to portray the Buddha before he was enlightened uh, was really important because I wanted to do what the myth had done, showing that he led an ideal life, that he wasn't just some wastrel who, you know, had too much wine, women, and song, and so decided to come off and be a holy man, but he really did live a wonderful life. But when he understood the the implications of his life, that everything is impermanent, and that life truly ends in death, he could no longer, uh, he could no longer enjoy his life. But before he has that discovery, which partly comes from the pregnancy of Yasodhara, he, um, he is sort of your ideal liberal landlord. You know, he's very generous, generous toward his servants, and he's always making sure that everyone gets time off, and, you know, he, he helps people. But he's, clearly there's a part of him that's in denial about death. And I did use that part of the myth in my novel. I mean, the, the parents made sure that the the family charnel ground was way off in the woods uh, somewhere. You know, it was not visible from where they lived. And uh, the hospital, likewise, was sort of hidden away. And older people were kind of shunted off to the far reaches of this estate so that they were in a denial of death, you know, a, a feasible one that actually could be done with people if they really wanted to deny death. And so the Buddhist whole way of living was living in the moment, you know, really enjoying the moment. And that is a kind of a 
a, sometimes a popular view of Buddhism. Well, that's all you have to do, be here now. But in fact, there is some more in Buddhism that you have to do simply besides live in the moment. And that is what the Buddha learned once he started having these existential uh, experiences of, of deaths and, and fears and seeing his wife uh, suddenly mortal, you know, passing out with morning sickness, throwing up, you know, and all of a sudden he's, the foundations of his life begin to shake. Now, the legend of, of Buddha, or the myth of Buddha, it's more about him living enclosed in a palace, enjoying everything, and then happening out into the world and seeing all of the death and things like that. And in the book, you do have him going amongst um, the, the different servants and the different people that construct things and all of that. So he sees some of the sickness in that respect, but it was not until the pregnancy and specifically a dream um, where, that he had where he was trapped under a woman's corpse and could not get free. That's what really shifted everything for him. What did you mean or what was the symbolism of the woman's corpse and not being able to get free from that? Well, in sort of his own private symbolism, it might have been, although I don't, I don't nail this down, I just leave it for the reader's imagination. It might have been because his mother had died so early and she died in a way that he was underneath her literal corpse, so that might have happened. That's fictional. But the whole idea of mortality and how the culture always relates mortality to women. And, uh, I mean, when I say the culture, I'm almost that culture and our, you know, this is something that a patriarchal culture has done through the millennia is, you know, women equal death, you know, the great womb tomb, you know, the, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why women very often are scary to men. They bleed, you know, their bodies leak, you know, they're, they're too mortal. And now mm. suddenly... Siddhartha is having this very intimate experience with a mortal woman, woman, and he has to face his own mortality. And so his his perfect life begins to uh, form cracks in it. And does that answer your question? Yes, yes. And so he ends up leaving, and the only solace that she can really find is uh, either in in primping and beautifying or in trying to have the conversations that she can have, but finding some connection to a group of women. And that, too, is kind of another theme that I think speaks to, to how we are as women, that we, we need that community, we need that connection uh, in a certain way to kind of help round out life. Uh, is that part yeah. of the reason that she went there oh, so yeah. that she could... Yes, very much so. I mean, she she can't she couldn't live without friends, without community. You know, I mean, she'd just be more and more into her self-centered concerns. And uh, and Pajapati is this figure who kind of helps her out of this, and you know, reminds her, you know, there there are things you can do, there are things you can be. And of course, Pajapati is the first person who sees the Buddha when he returns. Pajapati is the Buddha's stepmother, who lives in the woman's community with Yasi and other relatives and children. There's definite themes of the masculine-feminine balance and imbalance that is taking place. There's a lot of the shadow masculine with the dominance of her brother or with the way of the patriarchy. And then there is also 
the shadow feminine kind of in the way of the submission, uh, the way of agreeing in the sacrificing or the people pleasing or even in some of the manipulation that takes place around the women. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that whole balance and or imbalance and um, where in the story you feel like it reaches more of a balance? Well, the, yeah, the imbalance happens, I think, when the society itself is not is overpolarized into masculine and feminism, and fem, femini, femininity, and so the women with this narcissistic concern for their bodies and how they look, and I mean, this continues to this day. I, I remember going to buy my my husband a birthday present. And I, we just moved into the neighborhood, and I was looking for a men's store. There were no men's clothing stores. There were five or six women's clothing stores. I said, oh, yes. I mean, something, something does not quite compute here, that we're, we're trapped into these roles. And um, with the men, this need to be a warrior and not have any emotions and deny death. You know, I mean, that's... I mean, her brother, who is really, in some sense, the, the real antagonist, the real evil one in the novel, you know, is sort of a victim of this, uh, to use the cliche, toxic masculinity. You know, and his fear and hatred of women are, are partly around that fear and hatred of death. And that so was another, another thing that seemed kind of like it mirrored some of the things that we've seen in the last um, few years around around men or this hatred of women and kind of a narcissism or a dominance uh, or using of women except for the mother, uh, that, that some element of that existed there as well. Yes, yes. Um, oh, there's something else you said, and no, I can't remember what it was. But, uh, yeah, that whole, that whole dynamic was very strong in the, in the Sangha at that time, as far as, at least according to the Pali scriptures that there were, I mean, how, why women shouldn't join the Sangha, um, and there were so many more rules for, once they did join, there were so many rule, more rules for women than for men, and some of them were clearly turning women into in, inferior beings. I mean, there was, there's one rule where if there was a, if when the monks and the monastics are lining up, the most junior monk is in, in front, is in front of the most senior uh, none, and so there, th- that dynamic goes on throughout the sangha, and there's always a struggle. And one of the one of the things that I noticed as I was doing research uh, in the novel was the amount of struggle, be- you know, with these issues. And part of it is related to this super asceticism uh, on the part of the uh, monks, such as Devadatta, who finally left the. Uh, Suda after really confronting the Buddha and saying monks should not ever live inside. They should be totally vegetarian. They need to wear rags from the trash. I mean, he's just completely denigrating the world in every way. And the Buddha says, monks, if they choose that, can do that, but I'm not going to turn that into a rule. And sooner or later, Devadatta did leave, and that is part of this this whole struggle between what is it to be a human being and to be seeking enlightenment. And there is a real tension in Buddhism about not enjoying the world, about real and seeing the world as impermanent and developing this dispassion toward the world. 
because Buddhism does say life is suffering, and and it's almost as if these ascetics, it's such an extreme. It's it's almost how much suffering can I can I take to to really realize that I can transcend this suffering? Right, and that's a very good question, and I I would just could give you only a partial answer because I think different Buddhists have different different Buddhists have different takes on it. Uh, Buddhism really doesn't say life is suffering. It says life is tied up in suffering, involved with suffering. Sometimes they use the word unsatisfactory. You know, that you, you seek after something beautiful and that something beautiful will die or you will get tired of it. And then, you know, you're, you suffer more than you did before or you feel more pain and misery and longing. So, but they don't say that life itself is, you know, moment, ter- moment to moment, awful and terrible. Obviously, it can be quite beautiful, as the Buddha was, uh, as the Buddha's life early, his life was his, in his early marriage showed they had a, a good time. But even then, there were these little moments of doubt. Another word for suffering, very often, another translation, is the word stress, rather than using the word suffering. Different yes. people, I think, relate to different words. Some people go, oh, suffering, I don't get it. I don't have this suffering. That's for medieval monks to suffer. I, I have a sort of medieval mentality, so I like suffering. But a lot of people like stress. And another, the, the translation of the word actually has to do with a cart with a wheel. I mean, the etymology of the word has to do with a cart with a, a wheel out of alignment. The word dukkha, which is the uh, Pali word. Dukkha means that somehow this wheel is out of alignment, so things aren't uh, satisfactory. And I sometimes think of when you've got a shopping cart, and you know, one of the wheels isn't working, and how annoying that can get. Sometimes yes. it's going along all right, and then all of a sudden, oh, no, I can't move the thing. There's that aspect of dis- dissatisfaction in life. Bride of the Buddha is written by Dr. Barbara McHugh, who's a Buddhist practitioner with degrees in religious literature from UC Berkeley. This engrossing exploration of gender dynamics, identity, and the spiritual quest for meaning will appeal to Buddhist and general readers alike. I invite you to go to her website, barbaramchugh.com, and check out all that she's doing, including this wonderful novel about Yasodhara the abandoned wife of Buddha. We'll be right back after these messages with more Barbara McHugh and the Bride of the Buddha. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more? 
more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at imsimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. My guest today is Barbara McHugh, and we are talking about her beautiful book, Bride of the Buddha. I urge you to pick up your copy and be whisked away into this novel and the storyline. It's a, a wonderful story. It will definitely get you engaged with the characters, but there are also so many principles of Buddhism that are interwoven throughout as you learn about the journey of Yasodhara and also her quest for her own enlightenment from the book. My husband spoke one last time. I promised, I promise I, if I find the truth, I'll bring it home to you and Rahula. I doubted his words. A minute went by, then another. Finally, the breeze shifted and the crickets resumed their refrain. Siddhartha had left as I knew he would. He was taking the journey I'd once intended for myself. Supposedly, the moon was full the night he left. Supposedly, I slept through it all. My version of these events will not be one told to future generations. I was all but banished from that story. It's the price I had to pay for the life I chose. The life she chose. It, it's interesting, Yasodhara's life almost has these cycles that repeat because she loses her sister, uh, and then she loses another sister, and then she loses Siddhartha, and then she loses her son, and then she loses um, the next gentleman that she was with. And, and so it's, it's almost as if you're moving through her, her loss and her grief and her suffering uh, as she goes through the entire uh, experience of, of wanting that enlightenment and not even realizing that those steps along the way are what are also pushing her towards that letting go of the world. Yes, that's true. Uh, and fortunately, she has some people to light up the way as she passes through these various stages. Uh, that's why I had her head for the hills after she loses her son, after her son becomes a monk. And she, she meets a sort of shamanistic figure. Now, that's fiction, but it's based on you know a, a tribe that... Uh, supposedly existed in the hills at that time. And um, 
had some uh, communication with uh, the Buddhist father's clan, I mean, uh, the Shakyan the clan. So it's not completely out of the blue. But I wanted to get that sensibility to the novel, the sensibility of the non-human, of animals, of, you know, and also I wanted to deepen her love for the earth because that's one of the, the themes and one of the things that she has to deal with is she does love the earth. She loves plants. She loves gardening. You know, she's sensual. Now, how is that going to work with a life of renunciation? And so that's one, that's one of her deepest struggles. And, and part of that journey is, is renouncing all the trinkets and things, the jewels and the, the look and, and all of those parts that right. typically were from the society that represented womanhood to go into this place where she literally right. was chopping wood, carrying water. She meets Stick Woman. And then the right. story goes into forgiveness. There's a lot about forgiveness here, which was really, really powerful. Yeah, that's, that's really another really important theme of the book. You know, what is forgiveness? What does it take to forgive? And, you know, sometimes we think we forgive and we, then it turns out we really haven't forgiven someone. And I think forgiveness comes in stages and it comes and goes. And it basically benefits the person doing the forgiving. You know, that to, changing your relationship to your own past. And what you need to renounce, in a sense, is the narrative. It's not excusing a crime if that occurs against you. I mean, particularly when she has to uh, forgive her brother who committed real crimes. And uh, how does she do that with, without, uh, you know, exonerating the crimes? I mean, that's all the, sort of the basic problem with forgiveness. And, of course, it, the way that one forgives is the relationship to the past has to be changed and the relate you forgive the person but not the crimes in a way but having to do that it's the only way you can feel what connected and once again part of the whole uh until you can forgive someone you're always cut off locked up in yourself and uh that was one of the I think one of the things I found out as I was doing research, I'm not sure I found it out, but what became clear to me as I was doing research and thinking about other religions and comparing it to Christianity and our, you know, some of these people who are, you know, big figures in their religion will say, my religion has the only truth and it's the only truth and there's, has nothing in common with other religions. And certainly some Buddhists will say this, you know, well, we're, you know, we don't even have a God to worship, so how could we have anything in common with these other religions? But I think every religion I've encountered, you know, whether traditional or, you know, like a pre-literate or whether a, a Islam or any religion, they all have this need to free us from the prison of ourselves, from self-centeredness that brings suffering. And I I think that each practice offers something. I'm in agreement. I I think that they all have certain pearls of truth that, that seem to align. And forgiveness is a big part of everything. The way that you wrote it, particularly in regard to the tree and in regard to when she decides to when the stick woman says you need to now go follow uh, Siddhartha or follow the Buddha, it's almost as if there's a oneness component to forgiveness. 
that when you finally are at one or able to see from that perspective or have that compassion and the realization as to why certain things happened, um, it, it brings that sense of oneness with all things, which, again, is another step in the letting go of identity and self. Yeah, and in Buddhism, that oneness is also a kind of emptiness because you realize that uh, since you can't really define yourself, uh, it's, it's scary. But at the same time, there is, I mean, a lot of Buddhists will resist the word oneness because they say, no, that's too, it's too conceptualized. And yet it is mm. a unity. And it is, there's a love and there's something, a, a truth and an openness that happens when you let go of all of these basically walls between you and everything else. So if you don't want to say you, you've oneness, you could say, well, you've, you've somehow uh, dissolved the barriers between yourself and the universe and yourself and truth. I mean, we, we, get to the, we get to the stage where you, concepts become inadequate. I mean, I think that the, ultimately the Buddha will have, would have to say the soul, it's not that there are no souls, but the soul is a mystery. The universe is a mystery, and it's always changing. There's no, there's no static essence. I mean, if you look at your emotions, it, they change from one, one day to the next, one moment to the next. The body changes. The stars change. Everything. It's, it is, it's such a mystery. And uh, I, I love what Jack Cornfield, who is a Buddhist teacher out here, always says, we know so little, yet we presume so much. Yes, but there is yes. this openness to to uh, to the mystery of it all and to the to the wonder and glory and you know so it's it's a positive what I'm saying that it is a positive process this religion it's not just going into sort of a numb uh, indifference that's not what enlightenment is it's um, it's realizing you can be uh, happy and at peace no matter what the external conditions are. And that, that yes. is one way of looking at enlightenment. Yes, I think many people don't realize that detachment is actually more feeling. It is deeply feeling, it's deeply being present, but yet, yes, yes, apart absolutely. enough from it that that it's it's you can still yeah. maintain your joy amidst yeah. it. I, yeah. I loved when you shared her realization of the love that Siddhartha had despite him having to leave them. That, that to me, really depicted true forgiveness. I think a lot of people think forgiveness is a doing when it actually is a flowering. And, and that passage or that section really illustrated almost a flowering inside Yosadara of realizing how much he loved her and what he had to let go of in order to, to discover the quest he was on. Yeah, that's a lovely way of saying it, a flowering. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that's very nice. Yes, because you can't force yourself to forgive someone. You know, you have to be open to uh, just being with what is. And you can intend to forgive someone. But the forgiveness is a flowering that happens. And we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I want to share a little bit about how Yasadara goes off and pretends to be a male, becomes Ananda, to follow and, and find uh, the knowledge that she's been looking for. Talk a little bit about um, how you came to write her into that character. Uh, yeah, I hadn't intended to at first. Uh, but at, at, 
very little is mentioned in the Pali Canon, which is the earliest scriptures of Yasodhara. She's not even named in the Pali scriptures. So she, her, she thought her role ends when she says to her son, this is your father, go get your inheritance. And so if I was going to write about her, my, the question became, well, what happened to her? And in later, you know, later traditions rolled her back in and said, oh, she became enlightened and she joined the Sangha. And there were a lot of stories about her. And in the book, Yasodhara kind of dismisses them as gossip, particularly when the story when she was like pregnant for six years. She said, I'm particularly glad that isn't, wasn't true. But anyway, um, the other thing that really compelled me was the figure of Ananda. And there were certain anomalies about Ananda that don't make sense in terms of the, the overall story. One, one anomaly was that here is a, someone who was very close to the Buddha, was his attendant for 20 years, uh, and yet he never became enlightened this whole time, whereas so many people supposedly in the Buddhist early community, you know, became enlightened, particularly the people who were closest to him. I mean, he even had a mass murderer become enlightened, and yet Ananda didn't become enlightened until after the Buddha's death. So what was going on there, I asked myself. And then I asked myself, here he is, an unenlightened junior monk, and he is the person that manages to talk the Buddha into admitting women into the Sangha. And that, wait a minute, that does not compute. I mean, why him? I mean, the, the, the reasons he uses the Buddha surely, surely could have thought of. So then I thought, well, maybe it could be explained if Ananda was indeed uh, actually someone else in disguise, the woman. And she would not become enlightened because she was living this life of deception. That would be part of it. Part of it is other her, her uh, relationship to forgiveness. But that, so that sort of got me going. At first I thought, no, I, I, I can't do this. But then the more I read about Ananda and how he was always championing the causes of women and getting in trouble with them. I mean, getting in trouble for them. You know, and uh, he had, you know, his, uh, David Adava was an enemy of his, as was um, Mahakasapa, who is the founder, you know, the first patriarch, who well, I found extremely misogynist, and I used a lot of his misogynist comments, you know, verbatim. I quoted from him in the book. And, uh, and yeah, he was supposedly enlightened. So that 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 mystery I leave for people to to figure out on their own. As far as was he really enlightened? But so there, there was just the story just almost begged me to tell it that way, you know. And I, well, I, I loved... as I said, I resisted it at first. I thought, no, I can't do this. But then I did it. Well, I love that. I love that part. I love that depiction, and it um, it really deepens the texture of the story, uh, I think, especially for women and for young girls and, and for the way that we are looking at the, the power of women in what was possible throughout history. Thank you, Barbara McHugh, for this beautiful book, Bride of the Buddha, and thank you for being on 1111 Talk Radio. I urge you to go find out more about this and pick up your copy. It is a wonderful read, and you will thoroughly enjoy it while also learning a lot. Join me next week when my guest is Steve Taylor. We are talking about his new book, Clear Light, and the poetry that is set 
uh, on Eckhart Tolle's work. In addition, join me for the after show, which is starting in just 30 minutes. I'm going to be having Angie Sullins on, who is a creator for Durway, amazing uh, mystical art creations, along with her husband, Silas Tobel creates amazing music, and they live a life of pure adventure and magic. So let's dive into them on the stereo after show. So if you're ever screaming your opinions into the abyss and wanting someone to hear you, that is the place to come where you can talk with us, share your comments, ask your questions, and be part of the show. Go to the banner right in the center of my show page, set up your avatar, and I'll hear you there in about 30 minutes. Until next week, I am Simran, in love, of love, with love, and as love. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Simran next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.